The Cal Halbert Podcast. Hi, everybody. Thank you for downloading and listening to this week's episode of the Cal Halbert Podcast. This week's guest is Ted Stone. Now, you may not recognise the name Ted Stone, and you probably shouldn't because he's not famous, actually. Is he famous? Well, he should be. I think he should be. He is very much the Martin Lewis of customer service, and I wanted to get Ted on the podcast because he had such an incredible job when he used to live in Las Vegas. He was head of VIP for the Caesars Group, you know, the Caesars Palace and things like that. We started off as we recorded this episode the day after President Joe Biden uh, was inaugurated and President Trump had left the White House. So we started chatting a little bit of politics and then we get on to Las Vegas. I hope you enjoy it. The Cal Halbert Podcast. Well, I'm very pleased to say on the podcast today, I've got the one, the only, it's Texas Ted Stone. Uh, Hello, Ted. How are you? Oh, good morning. I'm fine, Cal. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Very well. You know, you're the first guest that's asked how I am, so thank you very much. <laughs> well, my lord, who are you having on this show? You should be <laughs> well, I'm American and Southern. We like to be polite, you know. So, well, okay. actually, while we're while we're on that, so we are recording this podcast the day after you've got a new president. Yes, we do. Mr. President Trump has gone. Uh, well, uh, well, he's out the White House at least. Yes, and yes. you have and and the, and to be fair, the social media clapdown, which happened, you know, prior to that, has will I think have as much impact on us as his actual departure from DC. <laughs> it, it, you know, we we all need that break. We do. We need the break. As the as the day went on yesterday, and and I was glued to CNN to watch it. Um, I think we all, everyone that I know, collectively felt lighter, like that, like you could breathe again. Just it wasn't just about the politics; mm-hmm. it was about seeing the return of uh, decency and kindness and concern for someone for to, to, first of all to hear a president talking complete coherent sentences was lovely <laughs> I, I appreciated that um, but then the fact that those sentences were about someone other than himself also lovely yes you know let's consider the entire nation not just this is the biggest or the best or i'm the greatest or whatever so yeah it was it was a long time coming i think a lot of people americans and people across the world woke up feeling like maybe reality could you know normality could come back a little bit Mm -hmm. we're all waiting for that in the pandemic anyway so i think this was a taste yeah i i I certainly agree with that i've got a big interest in american politics anyway and it was really interesting to see that obviously um tradition is that the majority of uh past presidents will We'll come to the inauguration in that. I know that uh, President Carter wasn't there. I believe he's unwell. I, I think that's why he's... Uh, he, he, he wasn't... I don't think he's like personally ill at the moment, but he is 96 and there is a pandemic. Yeah. And so he's a, li- a bit more frail. Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, I still, even all these years in England, I still think in Fahrenheit. And I kept giving the temperature yesterday, which was 40 for us, which clearly in Celsius is going to be what, in the single digits. Mm-hmm. Uh, very, very cold. So 96 pandemic outside 
that kind of weather, they opted for him not to go. But being as he's a Democrat, clearly he would have wanted to be there if he could. Yeah, I think so. But also, Trump to me is the, is the biggest one that's made the divide between the two parties. Because if you look at once Trump has been in power, um, you you had George W. Bush and Michelle Obama. That that's a friendship that blossomed out of out of something that you just wouldn't expect. No, do you know what? They have, um, I think they both have a rather wicked sense of humor. Yeah. And I think they have their own inside jokes. And I, I wish, I wish a Mike would pick some of that up on what they're having to say about people. Because if it's anything like what some of my friends were doing, um, you know, there was a lot. Did you notice? There was a lot of social media running commentary on what people were wearing. Yes. Yeah, they got was. very interested in what people were wearing yesterday. And I thought, it's cold. They're wearing a coat. I mean, but cold has a limit. My God, Bernie Sanders in those mittens. Get out of here. <laughs> did you see those? I did, yeah. I was not at all surprised to find out that someone had given them to him. Bless her heart. I'm happy for her. She had made them out of a leftover sweater. And I thought, well, I believe it. And she gave him the whole blooming sleeve. <laughs> I mean, God, those were the biggest mittens I have ever seen. <laughs> Do you think they had a piece of string going from each mitten so he doesn't lose them? As well? <laughs> you know what? I'm, I'm surprised if somebody didn't put a string on Bernie so they don't lose him. <laughs> um, but... <laughs> But he did say afterwards that where he's from, it's cold, and being cold is more important than being fashionable. And I thought, you know what? Fair dues to him, because I'm not sure that a beautiful set of leather gloves would have really lifted Bernie to the male model status anyway. <laughs> so just stick with the mittens. We're okay. That's very true. I mean, I I, I don't think, Don, I'm not even going to call him President Trump, because to me, he's never acted once like a president. So... Uh, Donald Trump is not going anywhere, I don't think. I think he's going to be um, around and um, it's in it'd be interesting to see what he does because he hasn't got the Twitter platform that he likes to shout at because I have absolutely zero doubt in my mind that if he still had Twitter, he would have been tweeting how he had more people at his inauguration than Joe Biden's without understanding the, <laughs> the pandemic well, situation. He would, have, he would have been tweeting continuously throughout it and slating it. And so... Um, yeah, I, I definitely know, you know, his supporters, bless their heart, set him up to continue to be a force for a while because mm. those that relentless attack on them to send money for the court case, send money, it, it didn't even go toward the court cases. It went into a political action uh, committee fund that he's able to use basically at his own discretion. And he has a quarter of a billion dollars in American money. So... When he brags about how much money he's got and doesn't need any. Exactly. So the big question is going to be how he uses that toward other candidates trying to force people in. There's also the big rumor that uh, Ivanka Trump is going to have a primary run against Marco Rubio for the 2022 Senate race from Florida. Because except for one daughter, all of the Trump clan has just moved to Florida. And I thought, you know what? That's okay with me. I've been to Disney. I don't need to go back to Florida. <laughs> they, you know, they can put a wall up down there. We can go with, you know, we Washington, D.C. is desperate to be a state. We'll let them in, kick Florida out. It can be Trump world. So they can stay down there. They can have Disney. We don't have to change our flag because we swapped one star for another. I'm all for it. <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> I think you've sorted out the, the the Trump pandemic, so to speak. I have. Do you know what? I'm waiting. Kamala's going to call me today. We'll hash it out. <laughs>
Do you know, I, I think it's, I believe it was Conan O'Brien that said this in that, and I think I agree with him to some extent in that he's not angry with, with Donald Trump. He's not angry with him at all because he's a, a mentally unstable, unwell man. Because, but he is angry with the likes of Mike Pence and Rudy Giuliani and these people that have enabled him. Uh, and that's who he's more angry at. I tell you what, I, I'm saddened that after four years of the monstrosity of a presidency that we watched, 74 million Americans would still cast a vote for that. That I despair over that because it's like, what were you watching? What about that seems acceptable to you and like the direction that you want the country to continue going in? So I, I, that is a bigger worry to me than even the spineless people. When you get down to Josh Hawley, Ted Cruz, Lindsey Graham, Mitch McConnell, um, those things I think will have to be sorted out, you know, in a standard, a more standardized fashion. But 74 million people out there, you know, uh, insurrection two weeks before inauguration, it, that I despair about. Yeah, and I also despise the, the pettiness of him that has just allowed him to go, right, no, I'm not going to the inauguration. I'm bigger than this. He's, he, he's, I think that the best way that I can describe it to, to people that don't understand politics as well as some others do is that it's very similar to a footballer thinking they're bigger than the club and you kind of go well that you're not bigger than the club no one's bigger than the football club and Trump isn't bigger than the presidency yet he seems to think he is I I sincerely uh, believe that if you go back he got started on this as a retaliation because he hated Obama Mm -hmm. and uh, he hated Obama more than he hated Hillary. You know, back in the day, he was he was a paid financial supporter of Bill and Hillary Clinton. He yeah. used to be a Democrat. Yeah. So um, it was Obama and Obama from the that press court dinner where he railed on Trump and it made Trump decide to run. So I honestly, honestly, if I had to put my hand on the Bible, I would tell people I don't believe the man intended to win in 2016. I think he wanted to be victimized. He wanted to be able to take the position of they rigged it, they stole it, I'm the best one, and open a cable network that was anti-government, that was going to run in opposition to Fox. I think that was his plan. And then accidentally, whoops, people hated Hillary more than we knew. Yeah, I think they, that's they how we won the election in. more. It was a vote against Hillary rather than it was a vote for Trump. And don't forget, uh, those of people that weren't watching or aren't as familiar, the one other big difference in 2016 that was not 2020 was a major national third candidate. There was a third candidate that siphoned votes away from Hillary. Mm-hmm. So you have to ask yourself, if there had been a third candidate, a major national third candidate like John Kasich um, in this election... Would they have pulled more than 8 million votes? And yeah. that's a worry. Yeah. Because they would have gone from Biden. Mm-hmm. So th- I think that was a contributing factor as well, was John Kasich, uh, the rhetoric, the division that Trump had, and and the fourth big plot point, those bitter Bernie supporters who just would not get behind Hillary mm-hmm. because they felt like their guy had been... Um, manipulated by the dnc so you put all those grievances together and it was <laughs> the worst example of a perfect storm ever <laughs> and lord lord talk about the hurricane season that'll never end four years of it <laughs> i mean i don't want to uh, we've been speaking about politics for quite a lot here and i, I don't i don't want to be 
boring people because I know a lot of people think politics. No, don't want to talk about it. But I have been a, a follower of Joe Biden. I do support Joe Biden. And in fact, um, I was supporting Joe Biden when he was running against um, Barack Obama. Uh, and I didn't believe that Barack Obama should have been the, the presidential candidate. I, I'm happy to completely eat my words now and say I was completely wrong about the situation. However, on a simple um, experience level, I would have gone Joe Biden over Obama when they were first running back in 2008. No, I agree. I have to admit, Obama wasn't my uh, preferred candidate back then either. I was also Biden because of experience up to a point. Yes. But I was willing... Even in 2008, uh, my primary real expectation was that it would have been Hillary then. I thought it was Hillary's turn in 2008. Mm -hmm. And um, I think I really, it probably was. It probably was. If it wasn't for Obama, it would have been. It was. But Obama was so charismatic and had that, um, you know, I mean, yes, we can. Mm -hmm. it, was, it was as memorable as Nike would just do it. You know, it was, it was that big of a slogan. And it just carried him through. And Lord, he can talk. Yeah. You know, he can deliver a speech. He can he can speak to the masses. And that's a huge part of it. If you watch, I will say this, because it'll probably segue us back onto another topic anyway. If you watch the inauguration and you saw that poet, the that youngest American poet laureate, my word, at what she delivered. And as I sat there looking at it, I thought, any major political candidate who doesn't have someone like that on their speech writing team is missing a play. Because yeah. if you had taken a quatrain out, just four lines out of that poem and popped it into any major speech of you know substance, it would be the sound bites. It would be the headlines in the papers. I hope people were learning. Kamala, get on the phone, hon. I got a message for you. <laughs> I think Biden's going to be too busy. Kamala might listen to me. Biden's too busy. <laughs> right. Well, we can shut the chapter of Donald Trump's presidency, presidency book, hopefully. Uh, and that's, that's it. Go. So uh, let's not give that man any more <laughs> conversation. No, fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> but Ted, you, are, you live in Doncaster now, don't you? I do. Well, yes. I always tell people I live in Doncaster. I actually live in a very small village outside of Doncaster, but yeah. Yeah. But you're originally from Texas, just outside Dallas, aren't you? Yes. Well, uh, Central Texas for like university, uh, right in the Blooming Center, and then Dallas after that. Basically, uh, Dallas always, that's where people are familiar, and all my career started in Dallas. Now, what really, what I, what I wanted to get you on this podcast is because you had an incredible job um, over in Las Vegas. Now, what was your full title in Las Vegas? I was the head of VIP uh, services for Caesars Entertainment. So all of the the Caesars chain, which about 10 hotels and casinos at the time, um, I'd have to look now because there have been some sell off and some mergers. So I'm not positive exactly how many of, because they sometimes, uh, this is what's weird and people don't realize in Vegas, there's pretty much two major companies that own every hotel and casino in Vegas mm -hmm. within a couple of exceptions. There's one smaller company. Now there's two smaller companies. So the Sands Corporation owns the Venetian and the Palazzo. Steve Wynn owned the Wynn and the Encore. But there are two major companies that, that you can split all of those other casinos, fall into one of the two, and Caesars was one of those. So you're working for Caesars, head of VIP. Mm -hmm. uh, 
who's who was coming through? Is it mainly celebrities, or is it wealthy people, or is it a mixture of both? Who would you what would you define as a VIP? It, well, uh, ironically, it is a mixture of both, and and so it goes by some very strict guidelines, really, within mm-hmm. those organizations um, that a lot of people don't think of, but you should. You're familiar with it now. Uh, loyalty cards, just like you have over here at a grocery store or whatever. Yeah. Vegas had them way before grocery stores thought about them. Um, and the whole point is, you know, people always feel like it's a way to make sure they haven't actually lost as much money because they can get some of that investment back, mm-hmm. right? But it's such a huge marketing tool because it tells you not just how much are they spending, so how valuable are they to you as a client, but where are they spending their money? Mm-hmm. Are they a slot player? Are they a table player? Are they betting um, small, medium, large bets? How long are they physically in the casino in any given day? How many physical hours on the floor? Because once they get above a certain level, then they go up to having a casino host. There's someone who's bowing and scraping and making sure we make it as easy as possible for them to spend as much as possible. (laughs) But when it came down to my job, um, it was dependent on those levels of the loyalty card mm-hmm. there were there were back at the time there were all these levels um and what was interesting is almost uh, credit cards i think have gotten to this point now uh, the lowest level color you could get was gold wow if you had a gold because they want everybody to feel special so gold ooh, you're gold <laughs> gold was nothing gold you had to go on up from there uh, so i mean so the people that had a gold card they felt so special precious and loved and i was like oh don't talk to me gold didn't get you in my door but <laughs> I, clearly that is not the approach i took otherwise they wouldn't have put me in that role um so with us you had to be above a certain level in annual spend and how much we knew you were going to spend within the group of properties annually. Most all of them had a home property. So we knew who was coming into home properties when it comes down to what I call the financially based VIPs. So the ones who it is standard people with just Buku's money who are spending it. Then of course we had the celebrity VIPs. So anyone who worked for me in VIP had a list every single week of who they were responsible for that was coming in as a known guest because the top percentage of our guests that we're visiting were, are, are actually called whales. Whales? As in whales. the fish? Yeah, because well, the the, that's the largest mammal on the earth. It doesn't get bigger than a whale. Uh, that's the reason that they're called a whale. doesn't get bigger than a but whale. It's bigger. There's nothing out there bigger than a whale. So um, we had our whale list. Everybody had your permanent whale list. Who's on your whale yeah. list, Ted? Who's on your whale list? Mine, mine. No, see, I mean, I can tell you. I will tell you his first name. Mine, because I was the head of VIP and it was the head of Caesars, mine was the, the top 10 of the company. Yeah. And that, like within Caesars, the top 10 whales were mine. And the top one of those at the time, his first name was Urs. Urs? U-R-S. He was Scandinavian. And um, interestingly... Absolutely the most glorious man. He used to show up every visit. I mean, every visit and step out of the limo that we had sent to the airport for him and walk in in his bib overalls. <laughs> the man could have bought and sold us and all of Doncaster twice over <laughs> daily. And he would show up every time in bib overalls. And I just absolutely loved that about him. Um, he knew what he was investing, he knew what he was allowed to ask for. 
um, which w- was anything that he wanted. Mm-hmm. There was there was no limit on what he could ask for, and it would get done. So at any given time, you had a list of your 10 wells, and you knew based on reservations and speaking to the casino host whether or not any of them were planned to come in, and you had to accommodate them. Yeah. Then you typically would only ever be expected to handle that primary list of 10 or any celebrity. You never had more than one celebrity at a time because they're too... Um, they require too much of your time and attention. Do, do you know, to me, I, I wouldn't have thought celebrities are, are big gamblers. They might have the one splash out maybe, but to me, you just think, oh, a celebrity's coming in, they're probably there just for a pap shot, are they not? Actually, a lot of times celebrities are there because they're uh, performing somewhere or they're coming to see someone who's performing somewhere. Right. So, Because a lot of people think about the main shows that are in Vegas, and of course at Caesars, uh, back at the time, we still had tons of like the Cirque shows, which are very popular and yeah. you had uh, big headline shows, but we also had, of course, Celine was there when I was wow. there. She was, she was in the Coliseum. Did you see for Celine? her first? I, I, I know Celine. You know so, yes, Celine? I, yes. Yes. Yeah. She was headlining the main auditorium at the main hotel where I was head of VIP. Of course I know Celine. Are you kidding? Wow. Um, yeah, yeah. I've I've seen Celine with the long hair. I've seen Celine with the short blonde hair, where she looked shockingly like a Q-tip. <laughs> I wasn't a fan of that one. Um, yeah, boy, we weren't all about the short blonde hair. But um, yeah, no. She she. As a matter of fact, interesting story. When Celine and Renee first moved to Vegas to open that uh, show, they lived at a, actually at Lake Las Vegas, out near the Ritz Carlton right. uh, Hotel. Is out there and specifically bought a house with a helicopter pad so that she could fly in every day for the show. And you can't fly over the Vegas Strip in anything other than the commercial helicopters where you like pay to be flown up and down the Strip, but you can't have cross-fly traffic because of McCarran, the airport, and because of those tourist helicopters flying back and forth. So she had a lovely helipad out there. I think eventually it had patio furniture on it. <laughs> but no, she, she didn't ever get to fly in, bless her heart. So it used to take her almost an hour if the traffic wasn't bad just to drive in because she had lived so far out to have the helipad and it was too far out. Did you ever get drunk with Celine? I did not. I've been drunk with Debbie Reynolds, but not with <laughs> Um, <laughs> Tell me more, Ted. I want to know the no, ghost. You know what? I did. No, I did not want to. I did not want to be drunk with Debbie. Reynolds. I wasn't actually drunk with Debbie Reynolds. If I tell the truth, I'd had a drink. Debbie was a bit worse for wear, bless her heart. <laughs> but um, she loved a drink. She loved a drink, and she loved fans. Mm-hmm. She loved celebrities. She loved who she was. With one exception, the, the, the favorite story that one of my assistants would tell you about Debbie Reynolds, if Rose was here, she, uh, Rose was my assistant, she would say the story about the photographer is her favorite because Debbie had been uh, there doing something of her own in Vegas at the time and she popped by to see someone who was performing at one of our casinos. Yeah. So I was down there walking her from where she had been seeing someone we were supposed to go through the tunnels under the casino and across and pop her back up over near the hospitality event that was going to go on. That was never going to do for her because nobody could see her. Nobody sees her lovely red Bob Mackie beaded gown if she's walking in the tunnels. So we had to walk through the casino so that she could like wave at people and be Debbie Reynolds. Yay. But that's great. Wave at her. Fine. Do not take her picture. Right. That no, God, no, she wasn't about it because 
you know, it's not always a good angle, is it? No. And sometimes she's got her mouth open. Some, she always had a drink in her hand, which she was usually trying to pass that off to somebody before the picture. So somebody came up to take her picture. I'm walking next to her, and she didn't take it well. And reached down and grabbed the front hem of her evening gown and yanked it up basically over her head and screamed at him, you want a picture? Have a picture of that. <laughs> and when she did, I almost dove to the floor like there was a bomb in there. Rose, this was Rose's favorite story. She was like, the fact that you like hit the ground, I thought, what's going on? And Debbie Reynolds stood there with her dress up and you're like on the floor. And I thought, oh, I don't know what's happening. And I was like, bull, if that's the photo I'm going to be in that goes out across the, the <laughs> like rag press of the United States is me with Debbie Reynolds in her dress over her head. That just ain't going to happen. You know, I have, I have other people, other responsibilities in my job. We're not having that photo. So I, I don't know if that photo is out there with Debbie in the middle of the casino with her dress over her head. But if so, look for my feet because I'm on the floor nearby. <laughs> Do you know, I said, but I never even thought of this. But of of course, there's tunnels underneath Vegas to get mm. celebrities from. Is it mainly celebrities that use that? So the no, 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 no. Actually, one of the biggest reasons why there's tunnels under those casinos, particularly in the actual gaming floor, is to get the employees from when you when our gaming staff would come in, they go, they sign in, they log in, uh, they have their lockers, and then they all go, depending on what role they have, to the casino cage, but not the one that um, customers use. There's a back cage that's locked down. It's like a bank, and right. it has uh, little windows just like a bank, and they get signed out their tray of money that they're responsible for to work with and whatever their job is. So if they were going to the hotel desk, they get the tray that goes into the cash machine that mm -hmm. they can use with you. If they were working out at one of the other, in any of the food and beverage, anything like that, they all have money. It's for them to be able to transport themselves and that money from the casino cage to the closest point to where they work without walking through the public. Yeah. Yeah, because some of those trays and VIP, some of the trays that are being transferred between the casino cage and someone's actual working till would have over $10,000 in them wow. in one cash machine. So those tunnels were used a lot for that. And to move things about that people don't want to see, things that are that are about just the normal daily running of the hotel. Mm -hmm. oh, of course. Yeah, yeah, of course. You, I remember chatting with you uh a fair while ago now, Ted, and you were saying that um, Vegas has got, is it no number fours anywhere? Actually, um, well, yes, this is the thing. People don't realize the Asian community, and by Asian, I mean, um, like, you know, Chinese, Japanese, Korean, that side of the world. Um, they are very numerically superstitious, mm -hmm. and they're also very gamblers. Um, they they really like to gamble. They're big fans of uh, Bakra, that game. Uh, which is typically played at a very high level. Those bets are usually quite big. Um, eight is a lucky number yes. in their society. Four is unlucky. So if you've got people that are in staying in a hotel where their main activity the whole time they're there is going to be gambling and have to do with money, they're not checking in and out of a room that starts with a four. Mm -hmm. It can have a four in it, but it can't start with a four. The All four right, is so the one for them apparently that like, 
stipulates that right, look. Right, okay. So like, I don't think there is precious about, like, if you had room 17042, I think they're probably okay with that. I don't think they purged it from their entire society, but they will not voluntarily stand a room that starts with a four. Yeah. So I... Do you, do you just get rid of that floor then? So yeah, some of the hotels that are taller, because obviously you have to get in excess of 39 stories before it becomes a big issue. Um, all hotels in Vegas skip the 13th floor. There's mm -hmm. never one of those. It goes, you know, 12, 14. And then if you get above 39, it usually goes straight on to 50. Yeah. They just skip the 40s altogether. Like we decided they're not there, so they're not. <laughs> it makes sense, I suppose. It makes sense if, if you've, the amount of money you're going to make by not not having those i suppose yeah makes sense well and you know what it was so there was so much time being spent um in casinos having to do room moves mm -hmm. if you assign them the room and then it was assigned and then they would say no i don't want that one so it, it just saved so much time how do you think Vegas is doing during this pandemic? Of uh, One of the things that stuck, still sticks out in my mind of the news was people barricading the doors of the casinos in Vegas because they're not supposed to shut or lock. <laughs> so uh, so they, yeah, they exactly. can't do it. <laughs> and do you know what? It's funny because I speak to uh, people in Vegas weekly, if not every day, every few days. There are people that I'm still in contact with over there who are in different positions yeah um and it's it's been a struggle it's a struggle for those of them that are working because yes when they got to go back to work they were relieved financially but worried uh, personally about the risk of it i mean because until you absolutely know how everything's going and how it's playing out everything that vegas is built on is a high-risk behavior. Uh, you're very close to lots of other people. When you sit down and play any type of game, you're touching and handling and managing things that someone else is touching and handling and managing at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, whether it's a slot machine, you know, you touch the buttons, someone else just touched the buttons. Yeah. Um, how close can you put them together so that somebody's not six foot next to you? So there are lots of like slots on the floors that are physically turned off and the chairs have been removed, excuse me, even in the ones that they do still have. So, do you know, I, I seriously don't even understand how people that work in uh, as entertainers or in theater or whatever, how they're even surviving. I mean, it, I'm such a, I'm such a supporter of the theater and go to the theater. Uh, I'm a like paid supporter of the theater here in Doncaster and go to, productions all the time. I go to things that I know I don't even have any interest in. I buy the ticket because it's not much. I'm supporting the artist. I'm supporting the theater. I've left many, many things at intermission. I don't <laughs> mind telling you. Well, I thought, okay, they got my money. That was fair enough. I'm going on home now. Um, and I think that's fine. You know, I, I helped. I supported. I went. I gave up. I, I have left more than a few times. <laughs> You know, one of the times, Cat, one of the times that seriously sticks out to me the most, I was just really enjoying the thing. They have it once a year. It's very popular with the older crowd here in Doncasterford, as I put it. And so they, they have this thing with all the Motown songs, right? And all the, these little people come on and sing all these Motown songs. I understand these people have real lives. I know they're not actually, you know, the Temptations or the Supremes. I yeah. get that. I'm with you. And I know that sometimes you have to go. We all learn this in Dream Girls. Sometimes you got to go with the one that's got the voice. She's got to sing the lead no matter what, right? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. 
Okay, so the girl that was singing lead in the Supremes, I, I was I was fine with it until they got to sing in Baby Love. And she was clearly eight months pregnant in her little Supreme dress. And I was like, no, 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 no. I'm out. I can't. I can't. It was too much. So you went from Vegas to Doncaster. How on earth did that happen? Do you know what? Do you know what? I, I always say it's just one of those things that you think, no. I mean, initially, there was a, there was a woman who came in uh, to VIP, which is how this started. When the hotel desk would get really busy, incredibly busy, uh, we used to help them by letting checking in the rooms for tour groups. Yeah. Uh, because tour groups would come over from anywhere in the world and they'd have like 200 people checking in at one time. So we would tell them, come over and give us your list. Don't give us your people. <laughs> Don't bring your 200 people into VIP, thank you very much. Can we just have your list? And one of my staff would sit down and kick out 200 room keys and with the numbers on them and give them to the tour host and say, now you give these out to your 200 people, bring the list back of who's on those and we'll put them on the system for you mm -hmm. and associate the person with the room, right? Now, for the most part, it just went on like normal. But if somebody was clever and thought about it, a key to a room that has been issued from VIP will also open the doors to the VIP lounge. We didn't advertise this. It's just the way the system was set up. If we issued it, it automatically got you into the frosted doors. And the frosted doors are worth getting through because there's always food and a free open bar in there. It's just there, just walk up and make yourself a drink all the time, anytime. So this woman kept coming in day after day. She was just sitting over there on the sofas watching TV and, and enjoying the bar. And I kept asking my staff, has anybody dealt with her? Have you talked to her? <laughs> and so finally, uh, she was there for like days. She'd come, she'd go, she'd come, she'd go. We thought she's just hanging out in here. I don't know, bless her heart. Yeah. Now we knew, because we could look and see which key opened the door. You know, that's how together the systems are. We knew she was tour group. We could see who she was. Of course. But yeah. I was like, okay, I don't know what she wants. Finally, one day, everybody who worked for me was busy and she approached the desk. And so it was me that was gonna stand up and go talk to her. I was like, how can I help? There was a rule in VIP, that is a very important rule. You are only allowed to answer someone in three affirmative fashions no matter what the request was. Right. You had to answer any request from a guest in VIP with one of the three following words. Absolutely, certainly, or my pleasure. Those were the only three acceptable responses. Now, I told them whenever I took the job that I was getting rid of my pleasure because I was going to sound like Scarlet on crack <laughs> with my accent. So I, I just got rid of that one. But absolutely and certainly, I was like, okay, I'm with you all day. And you had to answer this way and get something done right away. And if it was something you didn't think you could do or you didn't understand, you never admitted that and you asked for a half hour. This woman asked me for a CV and I said, absolutely. If you'll come back and see me in a half hour, I'll have that for you. I didn't even know what it was. C <laughs> CV. We call it a resume. Of course. Yeah. I had no idea what she was on about. I had to Google it. <laughs> and so then when she came back, I had to give it to her. I printed one out. Could not for the life of me imagine what she wanted. Um, she was quite senior in a banking company over here and they were looking for somebody to come in and revamp their service offering from a manner that was completely outside of standard or the norm. And so all those days she'd been in there, she was watching our service. 
She was watching how we dealt with the people that were in there. And out of everybody, without knowing that I was in charge, she had decided my service was the best, bless her heart. <laughs> so I'm the one who she asked for the CV. Um, <laughs> yay. So I gave it to her. I mean, I never, ever, ever thought anything could come out of it. The woman lived in England. I didn't even have a passport. I was a good American. I'm just going to stay in my own country. So, yeah, it really, really twisted series of events and and gut-wrenching when the opportunity did come up without going through all the ins and outs of that because I had the job everybody I knew wanted. Mm-hmm. Everybody. And I loved it. But, 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 don't get me wrong, no job is perfection. I mean, you know, my, I, I was single and it was a good thing. I don't yes. know how you would be married or have a family and do the job that I did because of the amount of hours, because of when the hours had to be worked. I had to be there when the need was there. Mm-hmm. So I worked lots and lots and lots of split shifts um, where I would be in there at eight in the morning and work up until three in the afternoon, which is seven hours, and leave and need to be back in there by 6.30 and go and eat and be there until you know midnight or later. Um, depending on Are there any times where you just ended up jumping in one of the rooms instead and taking no, the power? Do you know what? I, I never did. There was an offer on that, but there's a reason why I didn't. There are very, very strict protocols about the fact that normally no hotel desk, and it's considered hotel if you work anywhere where you can issue a key card to someone, mm-hmm. no hotel desk is allowed above ground floor in a hotel. I never knew that. You cannot get on an elevator and go up to visit anyone who's even staying there. And the reason being, and this makes sense, we all had access to a machine that would make a duplicate key to any room in the hotel. So if you, if there wasn't a stipulation that you have to stay at ground level, anyone could take a machine, kick out a card, get on an elevator, go up and just go through a room. So in order to absolutely lock that down, security, who always works near the bottom of the elevator banks, knew as a staff member, you couldn't go up. My parents came in and stayed, you know, with me and I couldn't go up and visit. I I could have naturally because of my job and, you know, senior enough, you could do that. But it it didn't seem right. If nobody who works for me could do it, why would I do it? Lead from the top, yeah, it makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. unlike uh, unlike your former president, there you Mr. Go. Trump. <laughs> there you go. We're back where we started. I know. Uh, other than uh, working in VIP, I know you also dabbled in a bit of stand-up comedy as well, Ted. I did. I did. Um, accidentally, again, initially, I I did it. Um, at first, I remember doing it the first time on a bet in a bar that was like an open mic night. And uh, people were singing, doing all kinds of stuff. And I can't carry a tune in a bucket. I openly admit that. So someone said, oh, you're funny. Why don't you get up there and do that? And so I remember writing down the order of what I was going to tell jokes about on a bar napkin. <laughs> sat at the bar the first time. And th- there were like 15 people in the open mic night. And I won. Like, <laughs> I don't know, like a $50 bar tab or something. I won. It was... And I was so shocked. I mean, because, but Cal, I got to be honest with you, you know how I won. I don't know how that little series of jokes on a bar napkin would have done me on the night, 
but thank the Lord above, about one and a half jokes in, I had a heckler. And after that, all bets were off. Lord, I won by a landslide. You give me somebody to talk. Oh, I, I don't even want to use that word. To, it was going to be to talk something to. Um, oh, yeah, I absolutely decimated him. And that's when you have the crowd with you because they're so grateful that it's not them. Yes. <laughs> and the more he fought back, the worse it was because I, I am, rightly or wrongly, good or bad, I'm very quick-witted and, and can be absolutely verbally vicious if, <laughs> if it's called for. And really, gosh, Ted, was, you know, you know, I would never have thought that. <laughs> you know, Cal, don't even, don't even go there. Um, and so, yeah, I went by a landslide. And then, so I got an opportunity to do some stand-up now and then. And then the big thing that I did, which actually, and people who do stand-up are not a fan of me saying this. I'm not a huge stand-up fan. Even though I did it, I'm not a huge stand-up fan because I firmly believe anyone, anyone on this earth could do it if you give them good material and work on their timing. I believe absolutely anyone could do it. As long as you've got good material, you know how to get from one topic to another, you know how to loop when it's appropriate so that you take them back to something that was familiar and make it all make sense. And the timing, knowing when to leave them to laugh and when to come in over the top of it and double down, is anybody can do it. What my favorite thing was, that I got to do eventually. There was an organization there in Dallas that was called Comedy Sports. And it was group improvisational comedy. And when I got to do that, now that I got into. Well, then it, it, you say that anyone can do stand-up if you work on the material and the, the timing. I, I'll be honest, Ted, I'm going to be defensive here. <laughs> I know you are. Every, everybody I know who does comedy gets defensive to that. Um, I don't believe you can teach timing. I don't, I don't, you can improve on what timing you have, but I think you need to have that initial understanding of how to time a joke and things. Absolutely, loads of comics have writers for them and you have to have the material. And I completely agree with that. The timing aspect, um, I think you... Um, it is something that is you either have it or you don't personally. Um, going into what you're saying about improvisation, um, improv is a slightly different thing in that there is the heckler aspect where you being quick-witted will come into play, which is fantastic. But there are sometimes people just aren't funny people, therefore improv would be terrible with them. Exactly. And that's the reason why I think I enjoyed improv so much. With, with the... The stand-up, I think I was surprised that I was as um, well-received as I was. It had never been my personal like um, goal to do stand-up. Yes, I had a huge appreciation, of course, back at the time because of my age, for Billy Crystal and, and Whoopi Goldberg and Robin Williams, like you know, the Holy Trinity in the USA at the time. Do you ever meet? I, do, did any of those guys come to your hotel? Whoopi had been through. Um, I, I didn't meet uh, Robin at the time, and I, th if I remember it, I think Billy Crystal might have been out there at some point, but it, it wasn't necessary for me to see him, so I didn't meet him, but Whoopi came through. I've met Whoopi, um, and it's very, very dry, and uh, facially glorious. Oh, my word, that woman didn't have to speak, and it's funny. Um, or lethal. You can see everything she's thinking. Fabulous, <laughs> fabulous. <laughs> 
Um, so anyway, when I when the comedy sports thing came up, I think that's the first time that I really saw what I was able to do as a talent because there was a definite division between people who could do stand-up and people who could do improv. And it's kind of that square rectangle thing. Improv people can also do stand-up, but that doesn't mean stand-up people can do improv. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? A square yeah. is a rectangle, but a rectangle isn't a square. It's like that. So I felt like I'd kind of gotten into that little upper echelon part of comedy for what I found to be um, valuable and interesting. I loved the talent that I saw on display on the stage with a group of people doing improv at the same time. Because this was before we really had those shows on TV, like Whose Line Is It Anyway? But it was the same idea. Yeah. It was that type of setup. Um, and yeah, I, I loved that. Loved that. As a matter of fact, when I first went to Vegas, it was an opportunity. I, I thought about Second City because they were in Vegas at the time. Mm -hmm. They had a branch that was there and they had some that were in New York. And I had an, I had an actual sit down, um, what would you call that? <laughs> I call it madness, mess, which had never happened, which had never gone. I had an actual interview, if you want to call it interview, meeting, discussion about opening a 3,500-seat theater for a major comic in Vegas. I was I was at dinner to discuss what Who I was considered Rita Redner. How was that? Oh, God. Do you know what? I had convinced myself before this dinner that that could not possibly be her real voice. I was <laughs> sure that was not her voice. So when we got to the dinner, I mean, someone else asked me, will you take this meeting? I, I wasn't even doing the VIP thing yet. I was in Vegas. I wasn't doing the VIP thing. So yeah, okay. She was going to open at New York, New York. It's where she opened her first show. Mm -hmm. And we had to have dinner at the Monte Carlo next door. And I thought, why? Why are we not? Why are we not in New York, New York when that's where she's going to headline? Well, it's because they had a contractual thing in there that she wasn't allowed to drink. <laughs> So she would dash on next door to eat and had a bottle. When the bottle of wine got there to the table, I was so surprised that she all but put a straw in it. She wasn't like, you have a glass, you have a glass. She just kept the bottle. And then her husband, who, by the way, was her manager, had to order another bottle so that he and I could have a glass. I was like, oh, well, hello. So, but when she got ready to order her steak in that voice, I, I was stunned. Now, that is not why this went badly. This went badly when uh, we were discussing it, we were talking about it. Um, she made it very clear what she thought and how involved in this discussion she was early on when the, this old school comedian that you probably know, being a comedian, Marty Allen, yes. you remember him? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, With yeah. the big troll doll hair. Yeah, he, he approached the table, basically bowing and scraping. I mean, I was watching him come. I realized he was walking up and, and he was like bowing on his way. I thought, oh my God, it's like Dorothy meeting the wizard. I don't know what's going on here. So he approached the table and he's talking to her, like just sucking up. I mean, I could feel my shoes coming off my feet at the table. And she was so dismissive of him. He spoke to her. He spoke to her husband. He turned and he said, you and you are to me. And before I could say my name, she cut it off and said, of no consequence. And I thought, oh, excuse me. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Have I just hallucinated? You actually said in a voice that made glass quiver, I was of no consequence. <laughs> Get out. So 
she went on to explain to him why he needed to go away and that I was just there for her to consider whether or not I could be in the room without making her audience leave because she didn't actually care what I could do or who I was or what my talent was. The only requirement that she had for someone to open her act is that they were male and forgettable because mm. yeah. she was a female comic. Well, I was male. And by the time we had the next 10 minutes of conversation, I don't think I was forgettable. I bet Reed remembers <laughs> me now. Um, and so I won't go into what I told Rita, but yeah, yeah, I, I made it pretty clear what I thought about that. And then I went on to the bar to get a drink and who did I run into but Marty Allen, God bless his heart, who said, how did that go? I said, oh, I don't even. And he said, well, I'm just off. This is Vegas. I'm just going to see Connie Stevens perform over at the Gold Coast. Would you like to go? And I had to think, Connie Stevens, who's that? 1950 something blonde full skirts elvis movies i think oh yeah okay yeah i'm in for that so i get in the car and follow marty allen to the gold coast to go see connie stevens sing god knows what i don't know what she ever sang <laughs> but afterwards marty bless his heart i'm sat in a big leather banquet with a troll doll watching connie stevens after i've just cussed rita redner into next week <laughs> it, it was a unique day in my life but I got invited to the after party upstairs and we went upstairs and I ended up sat on a sofa with a conversation being held by someone on my left and someone on my right that were talking past me like I wasn't on the sofa, like I wasn't even there. They didn't ask me to move. They just talked right across me. And it was actual Connie Stevens who I met. And on the other side, Bill Medley, half of the Ratchets Brothers. Wow. That was impressive, although he didn't... Did, did you ever get starstruck in Vegas? Um, do you know, there were people that I was kind of overwhelmed to meet that mm -hmm. you think, wow, you, that's just, that's enormous. You know, at the time that she was there when I first met her, Celine was a big deal to me. Of course. She was, that was a big deal. Uh, Whitney was wow. a big deal. That Whitney was, <laughs> Whitney was a big deal. But, um, yeah, that, that was a... That was a hard meeting. Was it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, that you're not supposed to talk ill of the dead. We might have to move on because Whitney was... Hard work? Uh, Whitney was hard work. And it was on a day when by accident, because Rose, my right hand, had had a personal emergency, I had two celebrities. And I told you earlier explicitly, you were never supposed to have two. But I had one and Rose had to not come in and I had to pick hers up. And so I had two in the same day. So I actually was trying to coordinate Whitney Houston and her request and requirements on the same day that I had Janet Jackson in the house. So that Ooh. was... Oh, two big hitters. That was a big, big day. And Janet Jackson was lovely, glorious, and staggeringly beautiful. Like suck the breath out of your lungs. Beautiful in person. Oh yeah. God, I don't, I don't think any camera ever does her justice. And Whitney called me everything but friend. Good Lord. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, it was, two, it was two different experiences on that day. <laughs> do you ever get sick of seeing an Elvis jumpsuit being in Vegas? No, do you know what? I knew some very talented Elvis impersonators in Vegas and they run the gamut. I mean, there are some out there that look like him, sound like him. There's some out there that just 
put them, you know, they got a hold of one of those bedazzlers and a Walmart jumpsuit and started going to town. There's one of my all-time favorites who, you know, works at Harris in the afternoon. It's Fat Elvis. He's so big, he doesn't even stand up to sing. He just sits in like this big throne. Um, he's very popular. People go up and watch him. At three, after, three in the afternoon at Harris, he is still there. God bless Fat Elvis. And he's got the voice, he's got the big hair, and he's got big old glasses. And to be fair, He's hitting one part of Elvis's career. There, is, there are pictures out there that were very similar to that look. Um, so no, as a matter of fact, I just commissioned a piece of art recently by my and your glorious friend, Alfie Joey. Oh, the and, Alfie Joe Meister. Uh, and part of what's in my art uh, is Elvis. Elvis is in there. Celine's in there. Um, they're, they're big big parts of my Vegas life are in there. He did the most incredible job of capturing everything that seems like and feels like and that I remember of Vegas. And, and Elvis is in the bottom right corner prominently with those big shades on. He went with that Elvis. He went with Jumpsuit Elvis. That's the one he used. I love Elvis. And you know this. I love Elvis. He's, he's my favorite artist of all time, Elvis. Um, so I always light up when I know that there's an Elvis tribute act on anywhere near me and I always like to pop in and see one because nine times out of ten they're awful in the UK anyway nine times out of ten they're awful and uh, I was working out in uh, Marmaris in Turkey as an entertainer out there for a short period of time and uh, there was <laughs> there was an Elvis impersonator out there uh, there were two two very popular ones there was the one the standard Elvis and then there was also um, uh, an Indian Elvis and the Indian Elvis were, had the whole jumpsuit had everything had the glasses but he wore a turban as well and he called himself Pat Elvis <laughs> which I loved oh, goodness. which I just loved uh, but there was another Elvis guy um, who was just the generic Elvis impersonator but uh, he didn't sing many Elvis songs he just kind of he'd start there by going uh I'd like to think that if the king was about to day, he'd he'd sing some of these songs. Here's some Neil Diamond. Do you know? Oh, well, there you sing. go. Just do what you want there, Elvis. <laughs> so that's pretty much all he did. So. <laughs> no, do you know what? I um, It's funny. Are you aware that that's actually how Bruno Mars started? As an Elvis person. Young. He was impersonating Elvis. Oh. That's how he got discovered. He was an Elvis impersonator. Little bitty tiny Bruno with a pompadour. <laughs> yes, and I've seen, I've, I've gone and Googled videos from back then. He could do it. He yeah. had the lip, he had the leg, he had the whole thing. <laughs> and so, yeah, yeah. And and if you watch some of his videos, now you can see the hair. The hair is still, he, he's won that Elvis pompadour for ages, hasn't he? Ted, what's next for you? You've gone from, uh, from Vegas, you're in Doncaster. To me, you are the Martin Lewis of customer service. Service. So, so what's next for you? Uh, well, you know, still, I'm still working in my role now as Chief Executive Customer First UK. Um, I have just recently been named as a trustee on one of our homeless charities uh, mm -hmm. here in the region. And I'm really excited about that. It's something yeah. that's important to me and that I've done um, for a long time on a personal level. But to be able to get involved at that level to where you can have a bit more, you know, support and impact to have things happen, um, that's cool. I think basically right now, I am I watch, I mean, I've been the CEO of Customer First now for, gosh, in July, I guess it'll be almost nine years. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of times, people, when you get to the top job, you'll see people want to change companies within five. 
Right. They move on. They do something at another company. I have them because I absolutely really seriously love helping people get their customer offering right. I mm -hmm. just seriously love it. It falls in line with what I used to do. In the big scheme of things, if I was ever going to step out of this role and not be the customer service guy, um, it would probably be something hospitality driven. I, I seriously loved the hotels. I loved the variety of people. I loved um, all of the front of house, back of house uh, dynamic that went on. I loved knowing, you know, what was behind the curtain and, yeah. and seeing everybody. In Vegas, it was always so interesting because, you know, you live there, you see it every day, you come and go, you're right there on the Las Vegas Strip every single day. Mm -hmm. These people have waited and saved their money all years for these four days. An average American goes to Vegas usually once a year for a four-day trip. Thursday right. to Sunday is the most popular trip, long weekend. And they, they plan for this all year. So it's important. You know, I used to think it's important to get that right. Now, of course, I was dealing with the the upper end of that spectrum of guests. Yes. But it was never lost on me, the other ones who were there, the other ones, and, and how important it was to them. And ironically, boy, one little thing for them could change their whole trip. You could be given a VIP stuff hand over fist. You give somebody who's why we call the average guest something, and it can change their entire trip. Yeah. And so, uh, Ironically, way before I ever had the opportunity to move to England or live over here, I had learned that with our British guest, that the thing that was always the most appreciated by British guest that would either improve their day or fix a problem um, were uh, tea bags. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because you can't make english a normal cup of tea with an american tea bag you just can't do it and so we had a british food store in las vegas that was over on spring mountain and we used to always keep boxes of uh tea bags as a matter of fact i think at the time i think it was yorkshire tea that mm -hmm. we used to keep in if i remember right and so any guest who was checking in especially if they were vip or if they were even coming through the tour groups what we used to do is we would voluntarily, from the beginning, not when they had a problem, give them two tea bags um, per room per day. So that if there were two people in it, they could at least have one absolute proper, there you go, cup of tea per day. In the morning, wake up, have a cup of tea. Lovely. But the problem is a lot of Vegas hotel rooms don't have kettles or coffee makers either. Right. They want you to go buy your coffee and stuff from the outlet down in the casino, but not because they're making the money off the coffee. They need you to be back in the casino. Yeah. So that as you walk through the, the thing, if people haven't been to Vegas or that they don't understand, it is the still the truth. Watch in Vegas, the two things that are the most challenging to find. Do you know what these are? No. In a Vegas casino. Oh, oh I think is one of them a clock. One of them is a clock and the other one is a water fountain. Water fountain, right. They want you to have the alcoholic drink because you gamble more. Oh, they don't want course. to offer you water fountain. Don't fill your bottle. Don't have the water here. Have this drink. It's free. It's not free. You stay at that slot machine waiting for your cocktail waitress to come back and can put another $40 into that machine before she makes it back. Yeah. You could have bought quite a few drinks yourself if you just got to walk to that bar. Yeah. But you will sit at that slot machine and keep feeding it playing until your free drink comes back. So... Yeah, clocks and water fountains. And then 
in old school Vegas, it used to also be windows, but some of the newer casinos actually have some windows you can see outside because they don't want you to realize. In the daytime, they want you to realize it's gotten dark. You need to go get ready for dinner or whatever. But at night, they don't want you to realize the sun has come up. Yes. <laughs> and you're still in that casino. That's very true. That's one, that is one thing that is still true for me here in England, Cal, as it used to be in Vegas. It's one of those things that you get it, you keep it, it stays with you forever. I probably have 12, 15 different pairs of sunglasses. I used to always have them in Vegas because I never knew when all of a sudden it was just going to be daylight. And yeah. It wasn't when I went somewhere. So I had them in my office, had them in my briefcase, had them in the car, had them in the house. I have sunglasses everywhere still. We never see the sun over here, so they're not used that much, but oh well. I've got them. I've got one final question for you, Ted. Absolutely. Who of your celebrity show business friends would you like to see on this podcast? Wow. Of the people that I... Wait, that I met back then or that are like my friends now? Well, anybody that you can put me in contact with to get onto the show. I'm thinking because, you know, I know some people. <laughs> um, <laughs> I do. Seriously, I know some people. So it's like, oh, that's a hard one. Um, well, I'll tell you that some of the ones that I am in contact with the most often. Yeah, Absolutely. Uh, at, like day, like last night, I was having t tweet text messages back and forth with. Uh, there's, and they're also in my artwork, funny enough. That's how close we are. They're in my artwork. Now you won't, now you may not think of it, you may not think of them as a celebrity. To me, they're a celebrity, but that's because they're on billboards, they're advertised, and they're performing in Vegas still. Yeah. Um, I have these two girls that are twins that are friends of mine named Kim and Tamara Pinnaker who play in the dueling pianos bar at harris right and so they are absolutely um just glorious people we're very 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 good friends ironically when i moved to vegas back uh back then what 20 years ago now they moved there at the same time we got to vegas within a few weeks of each other we became friends and kind of grew into vegas together mm -hmm. and yeah, we've had more than a few slanderous conversations on the side <laughs> about, um, you know, stuff that was going on or some, we are all really good at grinning at people and waving as they walk by and still talking out of the side of our mouth about what they have out. Um, yeah. Um, <laughs> we can all do that, but they're incredibly talented and they work at night in the same bar that has fat Elvis in the afternoon. Because ah. <laughs> he actually is what's in the piano bar in the afternoon. And then of course there and then in the evening, they rotate through with some other uh, pianists who play in there as well. So off the top of my head, the ones that, I, that I'm in touch with the most often, it would be uh, Kim and Tamara. Amazing. Thank you very much indeed, Ted. Thank you so much for coming on to the Cal Halbert podcast. It's no worries. It was a delight. I'm, I'm sorry. I hope they remember that Cal was on this podcast as well because you didn't get to speak much while I was here. <laughs> That's good, though. I like that. <laughs> you know, it's not really unusual. Anytime that you and I have been somewhere to have a pint, kind of went the same way. Um, <laughs> sorry about it. But thank you for asking me. I enjoyed it. And, and good luck with that. I hope it goes well. The Cal Halbert Podcast.
So there we have it. That was this week's episode of the Cal Halbert Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. Oh, Ted Stone is fabulous. There's no business like show. Business like no business I know. If you enjoyed it, please, please, please share and tell all your friends all about it. Don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And if you can, give us five stars because, well, it really helps us out, you know. See you next week. The Cal Halbert Podcast. You've been listening to a Calvert Media production.